Well, have any of you in the last, oh, I don't know, year or so, uh, gotten into a debate with anyone in your family or, or maybe uh, your friends? Have you had anything where you had a disagreement and you each tried to convince the other person that, well, I am right, you should believe the way that I believe? We wouldn't say, I'm right. We would just say, you know, I, I think you'd really do better to believe uh, this thing here. Anyone had that experience? Yeah. Um, yeah, probably all of us, right? Every single one of us uh, have had at some point over this last year in particular an opportunity to say, wow, how could you be so terribly, terribly wrong about that? Or someone has said the same thing to us. And I hope that that was as mean as it got. But sometimes it gets a bit meaner too, doesn't it? We have a truth problem in our world, don't we? And it's not unique to 2020 or 2021 or the 21st century or the modern era. It's not unique to the Western world or to the Eastern world, to the developed world or the developing world. It is a human problem, a problem with truth. I had an experience recently. It was on an online messaging board where we were talking about soccer, of all things, uh, because this is what I spend my free time doing. But while we were having this conversation, you know, we, we didn't agree on something. And, and I, I was the guy who was, most of all, I say, I, I just don't buy it. I just don't buy it. And people were getting angry, right? Why? Well, here's all the evidence. Why don't you just buy it? Why don't you believe it? I was like, I'm sorry. <laughs> I don't. I don't find it convincing. I don't find it compelling. And I've had that experience in reverse as well. You're talking to somebody, you say, how can you not see? And they say, well, I don't. I don't. See, that, that truth problem that we have, it's not just about how will I pick out the true information, like which news channel should I watch? Has anyone wondered that over the last year? It's not just about that. As a matter of fact, if it was about that, Life would be a lot easier, wouldn't it? Well, we just find the, the right news channel and watch that, and then we'll all agree. But no, that's, that's not how it works, because the problem is each one of us, we not only perceive truth a little bit differently, that doesn't mean that there's different truth everywhere, or that there's not a real truth, but it just means that our perceptions of it, they're not all the same. They're colored by our personality. They're colored by our environment. They're colored by our upbringing. They're colored by our emotional state at the time that we hear about all of these things. Our perceptions of truth are colored by so many things. But it's not, again, it's not even just that, is it? It's also the fact that sometimes we hear what is true and we intentionally decide, well, I don't want to believe that. Have you had that experience in your life? I sure have. You don't want to believe it's true. Maybe it's something really terrible that's happened. You hear that someone you love very deeply has died and you say, I can't believe it. You remember the, the stages of grieving? I'm not a psychology major or something like that. But I remember that, uh, isn't the first one denial? That didn't happen. No. But it, it's not even just that either. It's, I remember having a conversation with somebody once. We were talking about uh, Christianity. Is Christianity true or is Christianity not true? And, uh, and I, I remember we were talking about uh, you know, creation versus evolution. And, and I, we, we talked about some stuff. I said, listen, I think this is an interesting conversation. I think that it's worth having, uh, but 
here's the thing. I'm willing to grant you everything that you say. Like, I, I'll, we'll go to the, the textbook, the high school textbook. We'll do the evolution. Yes. Yeah, we'll say yes to all of that as long as we can agree that God started it all, that he superintended the whole thing. I, I, I ended up saying, I'll, I'll grant you all that. There are Christians who believe in something called theistic evolution. You can believe in, in all those things and still know God. You can still believe in God and trust God and know Jesus Christ. So what I'd really rather do with you is I'd really rather talk about Jesus Christ. If we want to talk about Christianity, let's talk about the core of Christianity. It's not, was it six literal days or six figurative days? The core of Christianity is, who is Jesus Christ? What happened on the cross? And is the tomb empty? My friend who I was speaking with said, Ian, I need to be honest with you. I don't want to talk about anything that means I might have to change my life. Now let's, let's be straight that that doesn't go in one direction. That is a human experience. You and I have said pretty much the same things before. Maybe it has to do with, it has to do with a lot of the things that we talk about culturally, whether it's the environment. What do we need to do about the environment? Well, you know what? I really don't want to talk about anything that means that I have to use less water. We've got a drought going on, right? Maybe if I just ignore it, it'll be okay. This goes both ways. We have a truth problem. And the truth problem doesn't start out there. It starts in here. Now, Jesus, uh, as we come to the passage for this morning, Jesus is engaged in John chapters 14 to 16 in what has come to be known as the farewell discourse. He's saying, I'm about to go away. And here's what you need to know. Here's what will equip you for my absence. And in John chapter 16, in that context, Jesus is is going away. He starts off here in verse 5, none of you asks me, where are you going? Rather, you're filled with grief because I have said these things. Jesus, I'm going away, and all you can see is that I'm going to leave you. But then he says something very surprising. We are, if, if we have put our faith in Jesus Christ, we are Christians. We are called by the name of Jesus Christ. We are followers of Jesus. Our, our chief love, our chief desire, our chief hope is to be with Jesus. And now Jesus is saying, I am going away. But then he says, and that's a good thing. You ever have that experience when you're saying goodbye to somebody? You know, your, your, your kids are about to go off to college. Maybe you've already experienced this, and they're, they're leaving the nest. And, and you're, you're really, you know, you have mixed feelings about this, I'm guessing. My kids aren't there yet, but for most, those of you who have experienced, I'm sure it's a sense of, like, I can do now whatever I want in my house. I don't have to be nagging at my children all the time. Well, whatever it would be. There's a sense of that, but there's also a sense of, I can't believe that my baby is leaving did any of you, when, when your children were leaving, uh, did your children say, Mom and Dad, this is actually a really good thing that I'm going away? <laughs> and, and if they did say that, would you have heard that as, my life will be better? Or would you have heard that as, Mom and Dad, you are so irrelevant to my life. I don't care. I'm leaving. I've had enough of this. No, no one says that. You know, it's the big romantic scene at the airport. They're not like, oh, I'm going to miss you so much, but it's, you know what? It's good that I'm going away. See you later. 
be different if Ross and Rachel did that at the airport than whatever it is that they really did in the <laughs> make-believe world of friends. But that's what Jesus says to his disciples. And why were his disciples so disappointed? Well, it wasn't just because Jesus was leaving and they're going to miss him. It was because Jesus is leaving at this, he says he's leaving at this key point where it feels like everything that God has promised is going to happen is about to happen and it's going to be a good thing, but there's all this opposition. All of the Jewish leaders are angry. They don't like Jesus because he threatens their power. There's a human conflict that's going on. It's also because the disciples know that there's a garrison of Roman soldiers down the street. And they're saying, isn't part of what Jesus is going to do to liberate us, to give us our freedom? And now he says he's leaving? How will all of these things happen? How will they get accomplished? And Jesus, he... he, he covers this question in a number of different ways, but here he wants to tell his disciples, even though I, your teacher, am leaving, you will still have all the access to the truth that you need to be my followers. You will still have all the truth that you need. So you can not only do it right, but you, can, you have wisdom to know what is it that God is doing in the world. So that you have wisdom to know, well, where should I, I, I take my next step? Where am I going? What are we doing? You have wisdom to answer the critics. You know, in these days, one of the things that I, I've heard, I don't know if you've heard this before, uh, but uh, did anyone here know who C.S. Lewis is? Lived in the mid-20th century and he wrote, in particular in the mid-20th century, wrote the Chronicles of Narnia, most famously. But he also left behind a number of different works of, of Christian theology, Christian apologetics. He left behind sermons. And as a matter of fact, I think it was this week or maybe the week before, is the 70th anniversary of Lewis's sermon called The Weight of Glory. Have any of you ever read The Weight of Glory? It's worth your time if you haven't. As a matter of fact, let me grab my, my cell phone here because I have a quote on it. There it is. No, I've got it somewhere. I hide it so you won't know I'm taking calls during church. But <laughs> Oh, I, I seem to have gotten rid of it. But Lewis, uh, oh, there it is. Lewis, uh, in speaking to people, he, he was a profound and amazing public speaker. If you ever read his book, Mere Christianity, you may not know that that book was originally a series of radio addresses delivered on the BBC radio uh, around World War II. So that was the kind of communication that he had with folks. And he's left behind a body of literature that for many people is some of the, some of the most important, most significant books besides the Bible that they've ever written, uh, read in their lives. Uh, I constant, I frequently say that Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, is probably my favorite book that I've ever read. And people sometimes say, you know, what this world needs, what we need in, in, with advancing secularism, what we need with a world that's gone crazy is we need, we need a new C.S. Lewis to come around and, and to make those defenses of the Christian faith, to explain it clearly and winsomely and persuasively so that people will change their minds. And there are good reasons why, why they say this. In the sermon, The Weight of Glory, Lewis talks about, you know, sometimes we feel like, I'm paraphrasing, I'm going to quote him in just a minute, but sometimes I think we feel like uh, we shouldn't take pleasure in life. Because if we take pleasure in life, then we're not working hard 
right? We're, we're just devoting ourselves to mindless pleasures. You know, God, God, we shouldn't be in it for the rewards, basically. And, it, and it, does that make sense to anybody? You feel like, well, uh, am I a follower of Jesus because I really believe in it or because Jesus has promised me good things? And sometimes you say, well, I shouldn't be in it because Jesus has promised me good things because that's just mercenary, right? That's, that's greed or something along those lines. But Lewis says, if we think that, I think that notion has crept in more from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. It's going to be 111 this week. We know. Go to the sea! Then he says this, and this, this phrase always sticks in my mind. We are far too easily pleased. And do you ever think, if we just had someone like that to speak to us, to speak to the world, to tell them, hey, you know, sin is a real problem. We need to deal with it. And sometimes the things that you call good are not good, and sometimes the things that you call evil are actually good. We have a truth problem when it comes to being good people. And we need, some, we need a silver bullet. That's what we need. You know what the silver bullet is, right? It's uh, in, in folklore, the silver bullet is, is the, thing that can, the only thing that can reliably kill the werewolf. And it's entered our, our, our common everyday speech. I need a silver bullet. I need a solution that will just take care of everything absolutely. We need a silver bullet. We need another C.S. Lewis. We need something. And see, that's the attitude of the disciples. So Jesus is going away, and that means we're toast. That means our, our silver bullet is gone. Now, the disciples, of course, were a lot more right about Jesus than we might be about C.S. Lewis, because God bless them for all the wonderful ways that God used C.S. Lewis. There's no one like Jesus Christ. And if Jesus leaves us alone, we're really toast. That's really it. But Jesus says, it's good that I go away. Why? Because if Jesus goes, he will send us the advocate. It's how the NIV translates uh, this particular Greek word, the paraclete. And I almost wish that the NIV had left that word untranslated, the paraclete, because it is such a, a broad, wide-ranging sort of word that to give it just a, a, a one-word definition instead of a paragraph is almost a disservice. Now, the NIV translation is helpful here, advocate, because there is almost a legal sense to this, this paraclete that Jesus is talking about sending. In the court of law, someone who accurately tells this is what was going on, this is what was happening, and this is the verdict that you should come to as a result. That's how Jesus wants to describe this paraclete to us. He is a truth teller. In verse 13, a few verses down from where he says the advocate, he will send it to, he will send us the advocate. In verse 13 he says, but when the spirit of truth comes, who is also the paraclete, 
He will guide you into all the truth. And it'll be different than when Jesus was here. It'll be better even than when Jesus is here. Because see, the disciples, now I'm borrowing from a commentator, Mickey Klink, who actually was also one of my seminary professors. The disciples had learned what it was like to live with Jesus. Right? They spent about three years doing that. But now they needed to know what it's like to live in Jesus. To live in Jesus. What does that mean? In Jesus. Well, see, Jesus is going away. He, he, he has come to do a job, and the job is almost done. Uh, he's going to come back to, to finish, to fully implement it one day. But there's going to be a period of time where Jesus, my, my work here is done. And now it's the job of the paraclete to come and apply all of this and to make it work. It's the job of the Holy Spirit is actually the person who's in view here, as is made clear through the rest of John chapters 14 to 16. It's the Holy Spirit that Jesus has in mind. And there will be some things that are different about the Holy Spirit versus Jesus. Let me ask you something. Uh, we can have something outside of us tell us who to be, right? But that doesn't mean the inside gets changed, does it? Because there are all these things inside that are, are difficult to deal with. Sometimes the things that are inside that are hard to deal with are our own, like, no, no, I don't want to do that. You ever have that experience? You, uh, someone says, uh, hey, what should we do today? This is the worst conversation in the world. What should we do today? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you want to do? Okay, well, how about, let, let's, let's go to the park. No, it's hot. No, I don't want to do that. Well, but it'll be fun at the park. No, I don't want to go. You have these conversations. And the worst thing, so in my family, uh, you know, we, uh, we have lots of things we got to decide all the time, right? What are we going to have for dinner? This is a big one. What are we going to have for dinner? And you know what we've learned? Do not ask. <laughs> Do not ask what we're going to have for dinner. Because you know what happens when you ask? I want this. No, I want this. No, I want this other thing. Well, I agree with the first person. We should have that. Now it's two to, two to one and two, to one. And it's like, well, but now we've got two crying people and, you know, two people lording it over the others, right? We're going to get what I want. It's a disaster. No, we, we don't want to ask. <laughs> See, the problem is we got these things going on outside of us. They don't always burrow right into our hearts, do they? Sometimes it's because we don't want them to. Sometimes it's because we're not paying good enough attention. Sometimes it's because we just don't understand. But whatever it is, when things come from the outside to the in, sometimes they get blocked. But that's not what the ministry of the paraclete, of the Holy Spirit, is like. Because the Holy Spirit is not a human being like Jesus to exist outside of us. But the Holy Spirit is a spirit and is able to, to infiltrate inside and come into us and not just whisper through our ears and you know, out the other one, but start to speak into our hearts and start to mold and to shape our hearts. And this is one of the, actually, the very key points of Christianity is that we've been trying for so long all of our lives and all of our parents' lives and all of our grandparents' lives and our great-grandparents' lives and on and on and on, all the way to the very beginning. We've been trying to get it right, and we don't. And we don't. 
It's not that we don't get anything right. (laughs) But we look out at the world that we live in. We look at our families. We look at our friends. And we can't even agree with each other well in those places. Folks, if we just keep trying to do it on our own, I guarantee that tomorrow will look very much the same as today. Both literally and metaphorically. Both literally tomorrow and tomorrow as in 10 years and 100 years and 1,000 years. If it's, if it's not worse. We believe in this idea of progress. Uh, yet what progress have we really made? Let me tell you a quick story. Let's go back. Let's go back a couple hundred years to the Enlightenment in Europe. The Enlightenment. So basically, people said, we've got these great new tools of, of reason and empiricism, which eventually spawned science. And they say, we're, we're going to be able to solve all of the world's problems with this. And you know what? The world, in a lot of ways, got better. It did. These are good gifts. They're good tools. I love science. I think it's great. But I don't think it's going to fix my heart. It doesn't fix my physical heart all the time, much less my spiritual heart. So here's what happened. There is this sense of give us enough time and we'll apply these tools of of reason and science uh, and we'll, we'll solve everything. We'll fix it all. And then the 20th century came along and we had one world war and we had a second world war and we had atomic bombs and we had the Cold War. And we said, you know, this world sure looks a lot like the world before. The problems are all the same, only they're, if anything, more dangerous. Just thinking about this today, you know, I was the generation, I, I was born in 1982. The Soviet Union broke up in 1990, started like 89 and into 90. I remember watching the fall of the Berlin Wall. You remember that? I remember, you know, uh, Gorbachev uh, dissolving essentially the Soviet Union. I remember Boris Yeltsin and the hope that things would be very different in, in Russia from now on. We'd all get along. Yeah, uh, yes, Khrushchev. Well, that was, that was before my time, Julie. So, <laughs> Yeah, Cuban mission, missile crisis, right? Cuban missile crisis. And it felt like things were going to get better, didn't it? Felt like finally, you know, communism, defeated, it's gone. Well, it's not. (laughs) It's not at all. Not only this, and you know, you know me, I'm relatively agnostic when it comes to economic systems and and, uh, systems of government. I think some are probably better than the others, but none of them are going to solve our problems ultimately, to spoil the end for you. But, you know... I look out into the world today and I realize that the fears that we had in the 70s and 80s are coming back. Nuclear proliferation. It's an issue again. We're not just dealing, if for a while it seemed like, well, we just got to worry about like North Korea and Iran. And you know, those are problems, but we can handle those. But now it's like, well, actually, we never really actually liked Russia and Russia never actually really liked us. The problem's still there. It's still the same. Nothing has changed. And it's the oldest story in the history of the world because the United States and Russia and the Soviet Union, you know, they don't like each other, but, you know, 
what about, there was Rome and, and Carthage, and, and there was you know, all of these empires throughout history, and none of them got along, because all of them wanted to be able to tell everyone else, this is how it's going to be, and we're going to have the leg up on you, so we get the best stuff, and if you want to get the decent stuff, you better agree with us. It's all the same. Human beings don't change themselves, number one. And number two, we keep coming up with all of these new systems. Like we thought, oh, democracy has come along. Democracy will fix all of our problems. And I love democracy. I think democracy is great. But we still have the same human problems, don't we? You know, I find it so interesting. You remember uh, the Iraq War? We sent troops in. You know, deposed Saddam Hussein. Saddam Hussein is a terrible guy, right? I, let's, we're not even going to talk about WMDs or anything like that, okay? Just, but Saddam Hussein's a bad guy. And we, it seemed like we should all be able to agree that you know, Hussein being gone is, is a good thing. And then when free and fair elections or whatever degree of freedom and fairness there was in the elections in Iraq, I don't know. I wasn't there. I don't think any of us probably really know for sure. But here's the bottom line. When they started electing, people were like, eh, do you remember that? What about in Afghanistan? Like, oh, we, you know, we finally got rid of the bad guys, right? The Taliban. No, we didn't. And now we're leaving. Problems are the same. See, democracy comes along. People have the right to self-determination, and then they self-determine. They say, well, we don't like the determinations that you made about yourself. The problems are always, always the same. We need this Holy Spirit to, to come to us and to do something. We need someone to, from outside of us to come and start to repair what's broken within. And this in John chapter 16, all of this to really get to the point of John chapter 16, the Holy Spirit is going to tell the world the truth. It's going to tell the world the truth, and it's going to tell you and I the truth. Let's start with you and I. Verse 12, I have much more to say to you, Jesus says, more than you can now bear. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Because, see, when Jesus leaves, we feel like, where's our wisdom going to come from now? How are we going to sort this out now? Who's going to be our teacher? And Jesus says, it's better that I go, because now you will have a teacher who lives in your heart. Now, a word of caution here, because uh, I'm a big believer in uh, the prophet Jeremiah when he says, the heart is deceitful above all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So we don't just go, what do I feel in my heart today? What should I do? But rather, what we do is we expose ourselves to the truth in God's word, and we let the Holy Spirit teach us out of that. And that serves a, a double function. First of all, it serves the function of believing what God said in the first place because he already spoke through his word. We're so special, aren't we? We think, God, you know, I, I really need you. I really need you to speak to me. I just, I have this problem and I'm pretty sure that no one in the history of the world has ever had this problem before me. And we need a brand new revelation, God. Because if, if you don't speak to me, you know, we'll never know. And I wonder if God is ever like in heaven throwing Bibles, right? <laughs> I sent you this stupid book. Just read my book. I sent it to you. <laughs> For crying out loud. For not willing to read God's book. Why do we think we'll listen to him in our hearts? Now, reading God's book is not always easy. We talk about that a lot. But God gives us a lot of resources. 
He gives us a whole church to do it with, whether it's a pastor preaching on Sunday morning and eventually getting to his point, or whether it's the Bible studies that we join, or whether it's the time that we get together with each other outside of church and we say, let's, let's look at the word of God together. Whether it's the books that we read. Can you believe how many books Christians have written that come out of the Bible? This is what the Bible says about this. God gave us a whole church of people to to work this out together with. And yeah, we don't always agree 100% on everything that's in the Bible. But if we agree that where we ought to start is the Bible, and that's what contains the word, well, then we can have a conversation. But what will life look like if we just say, the only important thing is that God will just speak to me in my heart because no one's ever had my problem before and I need God's answer and he'll give it to me. If someone comes up to you and they say, if, if we have a disagreement, God said this in my heart, well, I think God said this in my heart, and it's totally different than what he said in your heart. How are we going to resolve that dispute? Are we going to, like, heart wrestle? I don't even know what that looks like. Maybe we'll just arm wrestle. My heart pumps more blood to my arm, so I will win. Whatever it is. We need something solid that we can come back to and say, okay, God is teaching me out of his word. He's opening up his word to me. And we go to God's people and say, okay, God's people, this is what I'm reading out of God's word. What is it that you hear? And we trust the Holy Spirit to be superintending all of these conversations. But probably even more importantly, making our hearts able to receive them in the first place so we don't run and hide. The Holy Spirit, what kind of truth is he going to lead us into? When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, clearly, I don't think that this means every single fact that you could know about the universe. Because when the Christian astronomers decide, you know, I want to learn something more about the universe, they don't sit down and say, God, teach me all the things that are true. I'm trying to find this particular, I'm trying to find planet X in the solar system. Reveal them to me right now. They get a telescope for crying out loud. They use the tools of the trade. It's not leading us into all truth in terms of every single thing that we can know, but everything that Jesus would teach us so that we can be his faithful followers. That's what the Holy Spirit will guide us into, and nowhere more so than through his word, through the Bible. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Jesus is saying the Holy Spirit will faithfully tell you what I would have told you. And what would Jesus tell us? What would Jesus tell us? He says, all that belongs to the Father is mine. And that's why I said the Spirit will receive from me what he will make known to you. He says, everything that belongs to God, that's what the Holy Spirit will teach you about. Everything you need to, to know about God. Now notice, it's everything you need to know about God. Everything you need to know. I think one of the places we go wrong sometimes is in thinking, uh, gosh, I, I, I have a question on you know, this particular matter of doctrine or, or whatever it is, and uh, there is no reason why God wouldn't want me to know everything. There, there are reasons why God wouldn't want me to know everything, not because he's holding out, but because he is God and I'm a human being and my tiny little human brain is never going to go all the way into God. That's actually one of the proofs of the fact that we know God is we get to him and we say, you are bigger than I am able to comprehend and understand. If we had a God that we knew everything about him, he is a human being. He is not God at all. You following me on that one? Let me see some nodding heads or some shaking heads. Okay. 
Some people know, other people are too embarrassed to say they don't know. That's fine, we'll just move on. So you got questions, we'll answer them later. But let me, let me say this last thing. The Holy Spirit teaches us what we need to know about God in the absence of Jesus Christ because, because he is able to lead us into all the things that belong to Jesus. But there's also the first part of what he says here. When he comes, in verse 8, he will prove the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. Sometimes the best thing that we can hear in life is that we are wrong. Because otherwise we'll just keep doing the wrong thing or believing the wrong thing or living in the wrong thing. Sometimes the most loving, caring thing we can hear is you are wrong. Parents know this because uh, they know it from both sides. As parents, when, when we were children, we knew that our parents were wrong about everything we wanted them to be wrong about. And then when we grew up and we had children of our own, we were like, dang it, they were right. <laughs> but the good news is I'm right too. <laughs> so, and we know as parents, we tell our children that's not right, not because we're lording it over them. Like, dude, you're so dumb. Don't say that to your children. That's wrong. But because we love them. We want them to live better than we did. Because we remember how badly it hurt when we did it wrong. The Holy Spirit proves the world to be in the wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. And now here comes the silver bullet again. Because maybe when we hear that, we're thinking, oh, so this is how I win all of my arguments. Right? But that's not what it says. It doesn't say we'll convince the world that they're wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. But rather that it will prove the world to be wrong. It's uh, like that old saying, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Let me share with you, as we're kind of wrapping up here, I promise. The book of Ezekiel, I've shared this with you before. It's worth saying again. Uh, in Ezekiel chapter 2, uh, God calls Ezekiel to be a prophet. And when I was uh, seeking ordination in ECO, in our denomination, uh, I had to write an exegesis paper, a paper interpreting a, a certain passage in the Bible. And this was the passage I was giving. He says this, uh, the spirit came into Ezekiel and raised him to his feet, and I heard him speaking to me. He said, son of man, I am sending you to the Israelites, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been in revolt against me to this very day. The people to whom I am sending you are obstinate and stubborn. God's really selling the job to Ezekiel here. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. And whether they listen or fail to listen. For they are rebellious people. They will know that a prophet has been among them. Folks, God did not put you and I here so that everyone could acknowledge that we are right. He didn't do that, first of all, because we're not right all the time. Only God gets to be right all the time. But probably more importantly, he didn't do that because even when Jesus was here, the Son of God himself, preaching to the people in Israel, he was right all the time. And he spoke with power. As a matter of fact, you read about his last week in Jerusalem, the Passion Week. 
And people kept coming up to him trying to stump him with questions. Hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? It was a trap question. Right? You remember this? You know, if Jesus said yes, then everyone would go, are you in league with the Romans? If Jesus said no, they'd say, we got some Romans down the street who want to meet you, Jesus. Because no government likes not getting their tax money. But Jesus said, bring me a coin. Brought it to him. Jesus said, well, whose image is on this? I don't know how big it is. That's a big coin. Maybe more like this. He said, well, it's Caesar's image. He said, well, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. See, Jesus wasn't just giving a, a, a neat answer where he got to get out of there. He actually was proving them to be wrong in the middle of that. Because he said, you say you're so against idolatry. Right? That's the big problem with the Romans. They're idolaters. Do the Romans worship their Caesar? Are you carrying a graven image of the person the Romans worship because you want to be able to buy and sell in the marketplace? Is that what you're doing? And at the end of that story, do you know what it says about the people who question Jesus? After that, they didn't dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> we can't win against this guy. And yet they still took him to the cross. They still crucified him as their enemy. See, the point of the Holy Spirit's ministry is not so that everyone will finally acknowledge that we are right. The point of the Holy Spirit's ministry is that one day we will all stand before the Lord to give an account of our lives. And on that day, no one will be able to say, but I didn't know. Nobody told me. Because the ministry of the Holy Spirit among the world is the same as the ministry of Jesus Christ. To say this is what true righteousness looks like. This is what just judgment looks like. And that's who God proposes to make us. That's as the final word this morning. The Holy Spirit proposes to make you a mini Christ. A mini Jesus. Having the power to go out into the world not because you're like C.S. Lewis with the silver bullet, who can, the silver tongue who can convince everyone because you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to speak the truth out of God's word, to begin to live by it and be transformed by it and as an additional testimony to this is what good, righteous living looks like. Watch me. That's both a lot more scary than we bargained for and a lot more wonderful than we bargained for at the same time, isn't it? That's what God wants out of me. That's what God promises to make out of me. Amen. And so may he do. Brothers and sisters, uh, the silver bullet is the Holy Spirit. The paraclete who continues the ministry of Jesus Christ in and among the world, telling the truth whether or not it is recognized and making his people sensitive to the truth so that we might live by it.